I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. In this episode, I'm going to talk about prayer, our misconceptions about it, and how we can have a really fruitful prayer life. You know, I've been doing a lot of research in this quarantine time, and I was looking at inventions. I love inventions. And, you know, I think of all the inventions over the last 100 years, the dry erase board has to be the most remarkable. That one might take a second. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 68. Good to be with you all today. Uh, So excited to talk about prayer, and a little nervous, to be honest, to talk about it because it's such a big topic but I'm so excited to get into it. But before we do that, I want to share with you my peak pit and plug. Um, my peak over the past two weeks, um, I've been reading a lot. I really have been enjoying it. I, I don't characterize myself as a big reader, but I can read very, well, obviously I can read, but I can read very uh, quickly um, and and absorb all the information. And so I'm, I, I, I enjoy um, reading a lot more now than I used to. Um, but my big peak is that um, our daughter, Hannah, she's um, you know, about 20 months old, 21 months old. Um, and she just decided that she was just going to be potty trained or wanted to start that. And so just a couple days ago, just looked at us and said potty and was like holding her diaper. And we're like, uh, okay. So we went and put her on, we have little kid seats on the toilet, put her on and she went to the bathroom and she knew the whole process. Cause she's been coming into the bathroom with my wife and we have little potty books and stuff. And she just kind of like, I don't know, something clicked on in her mind that she just needs to use the toilet now. So that's been really cool. Um, so she's still not doing it every time. Um, it didn't just like automatically happen, but, um, yeah, that's been pretty awesome. So she's just crazy smart. I'm pretty sure by the end of next week, she'll just take over the house and we'll just, she'll be in charge. But anyways, um, my pit is that, um, I don't know if this, this isn't a pit in a bad way, but I just, <laughs> our baby number two is on the way and about six weeks away, no, five weeks away. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> I feel, I just am not even like, it's, it hasn't even really been on my radar. And I don't know if any of you are parents who've had two kids or more or listening to this and you relate, but like number one, you're kind of like paying attention to every little detail. And then number two, just like flies by. Cause you're like, Oh yeah, we've done this before. We know the drill. We're not going to all the classes and reading all the books as, as readily. Like we kind of know what the first one was like. And so man, it has just flown by. And so part of me feels kind of guilty and like almost like grieving the loss of that time to really prepare and now feel like almost like I'm not ready, you know, like I, and I know I will be when, when he's here, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting feeling. And then my plug, I'm sure you've heard this, um, already, but if you haven't, I cannot recommend enough the, uh, series, the chosen, this is an eight-part series about the life of Jesus that's filmed professionally. It's not like a cheesy made-for-TV Christian series. It looks like a professional Hollywood production, like a show you would see on Amazon Prime. You can watch it on YouTube, on VidAngel. You can watch it on the Chosen app, which is free, and you can watch it for completely free in HD on their app. Um, and you can watch it like that on YouTube. But YouTube right now, because of the pandemic and everyone being online, is lessening its quality overall just to help with some of the bandwidth and the, the amount of traffic they're getting. So, um, But either way, go find The Chosen and watch it. 
and it is incredible. The first eight episodes basically take you through like, if I had to put it down into um, like scripture, like John one through four, um, but they intermix stuff from the other beginnings of the gospels. But it's not necessarily just what we see in the gospel. Like you would for something like, you know, I think if we're looking right at the gospels um, and you want to know like, what's the story, something like the passion of the Christ is super faithful to like all the information we have in the Bible. This series is faithful to the information, but it takes a very small chunk of it and then stretches out and then has all of these interweaved speculative storylines about how all these characters got to where they were when they encountered Jesus and why they responded the way that they did and and kind of all these interconnected storylines. And so it brings it to life in a beautiful way. And it's something I've been passionate about. I did an episode on this a while back about Jesus as a human and the apostles as humans and not like these kind of stoic, you know, divinized people that we can't even relate to. Um, But this series presents them exactly that way, just like as humans who, I mean, Jesus is obviously presented as God, but in like full-fledged human nature, like it's just so good and so uh, tasteful and respectful. And it, you know, I think it's done by a non-denominational group, but they've been very conscious about all the denominations watching it and all the different characters um, and trying to encapsulate like the Catholic devotion to Mary and things like that and being respectful of that and accurate. And it's just, it's really awesome. So I cannot recommend that enough. The Chosen, please go watch it. Um, And hopefully it will invigorate you in your relationship with God and your prayer life. And that's what we're talking about on this episode. Man, this is such a big topic. One day, if I ever write a book, I want to write it on prayer. I've already got it kind of mapped out in my head. Um, because they say, write the book um, that you would want to read. And I feel like everything I've ever read about prayer, for the most part, um, especially in the Catholic world, is very, um, I don't know, misleading or very um, practical in like, what do you do day to day, but it doesn't give you like enough emphasis on the why and like the real state of being in prayer to make it fruitful. And it becomes like a checklist or like a Catholic resume And that is just not helpful. And sometimes it can even be a burden and it can be very, um, I don't know, depressing to feel like you're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing and yet nothing is happening. You don't feel any connection or or it gets dry really quickly, you know, and uh, not to say that you won't have dry spills or what they call dark nights of the soul. But I think a lot of this has to do with our approach to prayer. And so something I would recommend to you if you want to dive into some more knowledge about prayer Pick up a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, or you can look it up online. And the Catechism is organized in four main sections. The first section is all about the creed, uh, what we believe. The second section is all about the liturgy and the sacraments. The third section is all about the life of Christ and how that affects us, like grace, sin, the Ten Commandments, how we live this out. And the fourth section, the final section, is all about prayer. If you ever want to start reading the Catechism or you just want to learn more about prayer, I always recommend that you start with that last section. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm just going to recommend that you read that last section on prayer. Um, You know, it's the Catechism is organized in paragraphs instead of pages. And so I think it's about 300 paragraphs. Um, And so it it wouldn't take you super long to read. Um, But, you know, you can sit down with it for a week or two and read a few paragraphs at a time, a chunk of it at a time. Um, But the thing that really comes out of that section, the word that I think and the concept that really comes to the forefront of that fourth section of the Catechism on Prayer is the word heart. 
that prayer needs to come from our heart. And I know we say that's almost like a cliche term at this point, like, oh, it's from the heart. Like, what does that mean? But like the heart is the center of the will. It's the center of our um, like emotional state in some understandings, you know, and it's this this place of deep relationship. And so when we look specifically to one section of the catechism, the very beginning of this section on prayer, talking specifically about paragraphs uh, 2,558 to 2,565, these will be in the show notes, uh, it says that prayer is three main things, okay? Three main things. This is the three things that prayer is in our Catholic understanding. Prayer is a gift, it is a covenant, and it is communion. Say that again. Prayer is a gift, it is a covenant, and it is communion. So what does that mean? So number one, prayer is a gift. That prayer is not something that we are meant to do out of pride, but rather out of humility. So we don't pray to like show off to other people. We don't develop these different prayer routines because we think we're supposed to or because it will look cool or so we can share it on Instagram or so we can have some profound experience that we can use later in a talk or a testimony. Like, no, like we pray because we want to be in that proper relationship with God, that he is our God, that we are his humble children and servants. And it's a place of receptivity for us. Not a place of doing, 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 asking, asking, asking. Yes, we want to ask God for the things that we need. But we have to look at like, what is the composure of our heart when we go to prayer? And do we recognize prayer is not something that we do, but it's something we enter into and empty ourselves for. So for instance, like, um, I don't know, I thought I had an example there and it went away. But this is what the catechism says about it in paragraph uh, 2561. It is a response of love to the thirst of the only Son of God. It is a response of love to the thirst of the only Son of God. So what does that mean? We are not the initiators in prayer. The moment that you kneel down or sit down to pray, that means that the Holy Spirit has already initiated that relationship with you and inspired you to pray. It is always a response. It is always a free gift to us. And I think sometimes we think like, okay, prayer is something that I do, that I have to initiate this connection with God, and I have to ask for him to come down into my lowly existence, or I have to ask for him to to come down into my life and be present in this place. Uh, And then if I do that persistently and often enough and in the right way with the right combination of things, almost like it's this like alchemist Harry Potter kind of potion that if I put the right ingredients in the cauldron, God will do this thing in my life. And if he doesn't, it's because he's testing me or I, I did something wrong. And that could not be further from the truth. Like the fact that we pray means that that connection has already happened, that we already have the presence of the Holy Spirit in or around us in some way, that all of that comes as gift. Prayer is always initiated by God reaching out to us because for what other reason would we then be inspired to speak to him in prayer if he had not already planted that seed within us? And so the first thing to remember, prayer is a gift. It is something you receive, not something you initiate to do. Secondly, prayer is a covenant. This means that a covenant is something that involves all of us. So it's not a contract. It's not like, God, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to pray these specific ways. And then that's how I'm going to know I'm going to have a good day or that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing or that I have a good prayer life or that I'm going to become a saint or that I'm holy or whatever. No, like a covenant is an exchange of persons. So a covenant says like, God, I give you everything that I am. 
as I am right now. I just want to be before you, with you, in relationship. No expectations. I don't have to do any particular thing for you to love me or for you to want to give me good gifts. Because I do that and I offer that to you because you have already given me all of yourself. Jesus already gave his entire self to us on the cross. He requires nothing of us in return for that gift uh, to be given. Our response in prayer is just receiving that and being in relationship with God in that place. So the Catechism says this in, in 2562, If our heart is far from God, the words of prayer are in vain. If our heart is far from God, the words of prayer are in vain. If we're not coming to God with a heart of relationship, a heart of desire, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how many things that you do. You could go through every novena and everything going through the motions, and it is not going to have its full effect or fruitfulness in your life. You're not going to feel like you're connected or in a relationship with God. At most, you're going to feel like you're doing holy things. And what that's probably going to do is inflate your pride and make you feel kind of holier than thou. And then when things don't work out in your life, or you feel like you don't have that connection with God, or you're in that, quote, dark night of the soul, you might end up with this kind of spiritual chip on your shoulder. Like, why God is this not working out for me? And it's working out for that person. Or like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, like you never gave me anything to feast on with my friends, but this one who's rejected you comes home and all of a sudden you throw this feast. Like, what about me? We can tend to respond that way when we don't understand like, God, the only thing that God wants is all of you. I know that sounds contradictory, but it's like the only thing that God wants is everything. And so it's simple and yet it's so complicated because of how we understand prayer in a mistaken way and how many misconceptions we have about it. So prayer is gift, prayer is covenant, and thirdly, prayer is communion. One of the words you will see all over riddled through the catechism, I've got to find a way to look this up, but I think it might be one of the most repeated words. Once you take out words like God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, like those words we expect to be in there and leave like normal English vocabulary, I think one of the words that will probably be the most used word in the catechism um, are unity, union, or community and communion. Those words are everywhere and especially associated with the Holy Spirit. And so there's this unity, there's a sense of family relationship that we come to prayer as children of our father. We don't come to prayer as students of a teacher or as slaves of a master or employees of a boss. We come to prayer primarily as children of our father. And, um, you know, Jenna, who hasn't been around on these episodes for a while, she misses all of you. And I've been telling her that you've been asking about her. Um, So hopefully she'll be able to get back on here, record something uh, for all of you, a little update. Um, But she was telling me the other day that Adelaide, her daughter, said basically her first prayer on her own. And it was just Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus, horses, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that was it. And it was simple. And, you know, I think God loved that prayer. I think God looked at that prayer and was like, perfect. Like just that she, as this tiny child would come to God joyfully, just to share with him the things that she loves, the things that inspire her. And when we really love someone, when we really want to be in union and community with them, that's what the relationship is about, right? It's about discovering who they are, what makes them tick, why they are the way that they are, what they love. And when you love someone, you love the things that they love, not because all of a sudden you have the same hobbies or all of a sudden you have the same interests, but because you see how it inspires them and how it composes who they are. And you love that about them. And so you desire to know more about that. 
And so those are the three things that constitute prayer or that describe prayer. It is a gift, it is a covenant, and it is a communion. And so I want you to take a moment and, and think about that, but also notice all the things that are not mentioned there. Okay? Prayer is not a checklist. Prayer is not um, a dutiful obligation in the, de- in the definition of the catechism. In fact, in the precepts of the Catholic Church, the five things, the, the minimum things, you can look these up in the catechism that's required of all of us, um, no, nowhere in any of them is prayer mentioned, like direct personal prayer. Uh, it is required of our relationship with God because, as I've shared before, you know, uh, Mark Hart, the Bible geek from Life Teen, has said, uh, prayer is not part of your relationship with God. It is your relationship with God. It is relationship. That's why we have covenant communion, like those words being used in the catechism. Um, but notice all the things that prayer isn't, you know, and all those things we maybe mistakenly believe. Prayer is not something we do to appease God. Prayer is not something we do to get what we want. Um, you know, prayer is not something that we have to do because, uh, or in any particular way, you know, it doesn't say prayer is getting up in the morning and praying in the morning, doing a morning offering prayer. If you're really holy is this, 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 and this, no, it doesn't give you any examples of what that is when it's defining prayer. Now, later on, we'll get expressions of prayer and they'll give suggestions about how you might enter into those expressions. And we'll get into that, but just notice like prayer by itself is none of those things I think we commonly and mistakenly characterize it to be. And so here's some misconceptions I want to clear up for you about prayer. Number one, we do not pray to change God's mind. God is unchanging. God only desires your greatest good. And so when we pray and we ask for something, God, we're not going to change God's mind. But when we pray, it changes us. That's the key. We do not pray to change God's mind. We pray to change ourselves. That the more we enter into that relationship and offer prayers of trust and praise to God, the more we'll conform our will to his. The more we'll recognize God wants my greatest good. And even though I'm never going to understand what that means and see it coming, that I can trust and that whatever he wants, I want. And so he doesn't change, but I change. And so anything he sends me, instead of stubbornly thinking like this isn't what I wanted, suddenly becomes a gift. And that infuses me with a deeper sense of covenant and communion with God. Do you see how that works? And yet I think we constantly do, like we mischaracterize this when it comes to novenas and when it comes to rosaries and very repeated prayers or things that we do day in and day out, our routine prayers. We tend to ask for the same thing over and over and over and over again. And I feel like God looks at us and is like, well, thank you for that. But do you think I forgot? Like it's been 24 hours and I created the world 13 billion years ago. You know, like... I just think that, you know, we we need to come to prayer every day uniquely in how we're feeling that day and what is on our heart that day and trust that he didn't forget what we asked for yesterday. And if I've been asking every single day for healing to come to a person and I forget today, it doesn't mean that God is like, well, guess you don't want that anymore and is going to forget. No, he knows. Every time you pray, he immediately hears it. He immediately hears it. But sometimes we don't receive the answer because of spiritual warfare and because of our own stubbornness, because we are not trusting enough in God to notice the response or trust that the response will come in its proper time. So we don't pray to change God's mind. We pray to change ours. Secondly, uh, I think this is a huge one in today's culture with social media and things like that, especially with younger Catholics, I notice. Um, But you get this with older Catholics, too, in a different way. So let me say this, and I'll say what I mean. We do not pray to be edgy or to find the next holy or innovative devotion. Now, 
I see this with older Catholics when they kind of are very set in their ways, like, or people who are very, I, okay, people might not be very happy about this, but when I get this a lot when I talk to people who know a whole lot about um, the apparition of Fatima, because there are certain things that Our Lady, that, that were said by Mary in that apparition to the seers at Fatima that everyone now takes as gospel truth. Like we have to do these every single day because Mary said so. Look in the catechism. That is not how private revelation works. Everything that's been revealed to us has already been revealed by Jesus and that first generation of the apostles' teaching. That's what it says in the catechism. Private revelation, when it's approved by the church, it doesn't mean that everything in this revelation now is part of the teachings of the church. What it means is this is approved in that nothing that was said contradicts what we believe as Catholics. But it doesn't mean that you have to practice it, profess it, or even believe it. You're allowed to make that decision for yourself because private revelation is believed to be revealed to a particular person or group of people in a particular time of place for a particular purpose. And it's not always meant to go into the future. You know, it doesn't apply to every person in every time and place like our existing revelation of Jesus Christ does. And so I find that with uh, people like that or people who are very set in their ways, who kind of do their daily rosary, they always go to mass and they're convinced that like this is what's going to save the world. Um, yes, prayer will save the world, but only if it's changing us. If we just do routine things every day and we think like God is waiting for us for like the rosary counter to hit a certain number for us to hit the jackpot and then the world's going to change, we have such a morphed view of what prayer really does, if that's what we think. And then with younger people, young adults and younger generations of Catholics who are very passionate about their faith, I see this kind of like desire to like, what's this this ancient or edgy or like thing that's not that popular that I can do and I can share with other people to show like kind of I'm on the cutting edge of uh, traditional Catholic spirituality or, you know, uh, these different fringe things that people may not know about, different writings of different saints and how do I put this into practice and, and all of this stuff. And so I'm not demonizing any of this. Like I think like, you know, if you have a passionate devotion to Our Lady of Fatima, that's beautiful. Do it. But make sure your heart's in the right place. If you have a passionate devotion to one of these traditional prayer practices, do it. But make sure your heart's in the right place. Make sure it's not so you are appearing to be holier than everyone else. Have this knowledge that other people don't have and pour them and great for you. Like that is not what prayer is. In fact, Jesus says this directly in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount and his teaching about prayer. He says this, when you pray, do not be like hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners so that others may see them. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go to your inner room, close the door and pray to your father in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. In praying, do not babble like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so, yes, we have these prayers where we repeat the same thing over and over again, but that is not because we think we need to persist so that God will pay attention. What that does is it changes us. It allows us to meditate on repetitive routine words so that we can enter into a prayerful experience with God and encounter with him. But if we're saying the same thing over and over again every single day, thinking that is going to transform God's mind or that is what we're supposed to be doing in prayer and it's bearing no fruit, it's probably because we're not supposed to be doing it. Like we need to come to God honestly, authentically, with our open and whole heart, unique to what we need that day and come to our father as his children. And so it's not about being edgy. It's not about finding the newest thing. You know, Jesus himself, you know, he didn't, he, when they asked him in the following verses, 
Paddy Uprani reveals to them, he doesn't say, there's this ancient prayer of Moses that many of you have forgotten that is really so eloquent and beautiful, and it will change your life if you do it every single day. No, he doesn't say that. What does he give them? The simplest prayer and the most beautiful and profound worded prayer in history. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, you are holy. That's what that says. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want your will to happen. I trust you. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, I trust that you're going to provide for me today in the needs that I have unique to this day. Not the same things I asked for yesterday because I think I need to keep asking for them over and over and over again. But let me recognize what I need today and that you're going to provide. And what in my life is still harboring unforgiveness? I've said this before. The two things that Jesus talks about the most and condemns the most in the Gospels are hypocrisy and unforgiveness. And those two things come up right here in this whole section on prayer in Matthew 6. And then do not subject us to the final test. A better translation of that is do not let us yield um, to the final test, but deliver us from the evil one um, or do not let us yield uh, to the evil one. Um, And so recognizing that in him is our hope. Recognize there's nothing there that's that profound or like, that's that like, oh God, you know, it's not super eloquent. It's not super filigree. It's not um, complicated. And it's not this huge list of petitions. It's a prayer of recognizing who God is, recognizing that we can trust him and recognizing where we need to uh, remove obstacles to that trust and that relationship because of unforgiveness, our own sin and our own fear of death. That's all it is. And then he goes on to say a little bit about forgiveness again and reiterate that. But that, you know, if you forgive others, your heavenly father will forgive you. But that is it. That's like prayer. Jesus, the expert, he should know, right? Better than anybody else. He's been on both sides. Like he prays to God, his father. And then our prayers, he is our primary mediator between God and heaven and us. Like he is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. He understands prayer from every single angle. And he doesn't give us this super edgy proclamation or whatever, he gives us simplicity. And so if we can take apart the Our Father, which happens in the Catechism, go read part four of the Catechism and understand how they break down the Our Father. And so you can see what is really being said and how it's the model for all Christian prayer. Um, And so I think like we have this desire to be edgy um, and that's partly because of our culture and partly because of social media and things like that. And so I guess the question I would pose is like, I don't know, do you want to be a Catholic hipster or do you want to be a saint? Do you want to be a Catholic celebrity or do you want to be a saint? Do you want to be a Catholic speaker or worship leader or do you want to be a saint? And sometimes those things can both happen. But I think if you find, if you go back and look at the saints, a lot of them were not really well respected at their time. They were fringe people. They were looked at as weird or um, like their devotions were strange. People didn't believe them oftentimes when they had visions of God. Um, Very rarely was it like, oh yeah, they had support and everyone trusted them their entire life and they had this huge following and everybody loved them. No, like oftentimes it was hundreds of years after they died that they were finally canonized and this, you know, revival and devotion to them happened normally because of another saintly person um and that was just out of honest prayer and honest revelation from god like how can i how can i enter into you as this person i i am uh into relationship with you and then they would read and discover these people who were very much like them very much just desiring to be in simple relationship with god regardless of what anyone else said and that inspired them and so uh, it's not about being edgy. So that's the second misconception. Third misconception, we do not pray simply because we are supposed to. We do not pray simply because we are supposed to. 
If you pray just because you think it's your dutiful Catholic obligation to pray every day, there's nothing in the precepts of the church that says that. But if you want to have a relationship with God, then prayer is required. So I'm not saying don't pray, but I'm saying like there's no there's no place in scripture, the catechism where you can go to and say, oh, look, we're just, we're supposed to do this. So I guess I should just go through the motions. No, like it's, I'm not supposed to be in any of my friendships. I'm not supposed to be married, but I chose to be in those friendships. I chose to be married because I desired that relationship. It's not something that is just expected. That's like, oh, you just got to do this. And that's what it means. You know, like, no, like if you really want to be a Christian, you have to understand first and foremost, it has to be a choice. It's not an obligation, but an opportunity to encounter God in a profound relationship. And lastly, uh, another misconception, we do not pray to show others how holy we are, but to praise God for how holy he is. So this has a little bit to do with that edginess, but I think it, it points to the true purpose of prayer. Prayer is about recognizing God is unchanging. He is holy. He is all good. We can trust in him. There has never been a moment in human history where God has not been in control. Because the second that we turned away from him, he brought about a plan for our redemption. The second we sin, he brings about a plan to use that for a greater good later. And so it doesn't mean we're justified in our sin because sin does destroy us. But anything that he does that's his own action, he is completely in control. It is all good and it is something that we can trust in that will bring us true joy if we're willing to let go of our preconceived notions about our lives, about God, and about prayer. So prayer is not so much things that we do and things that we fill up our schedule and our life with. Prayer rather is an emptying. It's a quieting and an encounter that is receptive, it's invitational, and it's humble. And so I'm reading this book, um, I think I've mentioned it, Sober Intoxication of the Spirit by Raniero Cantalamesa. He was the papal preacher for like the past three popes. So he preached for the popes, like this guy's a big deal, and he knows what he's talking about. And he just writes so simply, which I think is such a beautiful uh, testament to his humility. But he kind of writes in there, like the, the deeper you get into prayer, the actual, actually then it becomes the less that you need to be quote unquote doing or saying in prayer, the deeper you get into prayer. And we'll talk about that in a moment in the expressions of prayer. But he uses this analogy of water. You know, I think we sometimes think in prayer, we have to ascend this mountain and, and you know, go higher and higher and higher to reach this um, unapproachable God. When in reality, we should do the opposite. We should be like water. Water goes from the highest point and it flows down the mountain until it finds a place that is empty and it fills it. And so how can we lower ourselves, detach ourselves from accolades and achievement in prayer? How can we lower ourselves from this idea that if I do this, I'll be holier or I'll be uh, influential or people will think I'm super great. And how do I just detach and empty myself to where it becomes a point where there is nothing left but to fill up with what God is desiring to give me? So there's no prerequisites or requirements for how you are meant to pray. There is no correct way to pray as long as you are doing it authentically and from your heart, receiving, receiving that relationship because it's already a gift. It is, you are not the initiator. God is always the initiator. If you decide like in a millisecond, oh, I'm going to go pray. You're only deciding that because God initiated that thought and that presence of the spirit within you to create that thought. Or because you're listening to this and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you through it. Like it's only because of that gift that we pray. So let's remember that. So what does it mean to express that prayer? So there are three ways in the catechism that we are encouraged to pray. 
And those are, they all have this common uh, composer of the heart. They all share that quality. It says that in the catechism. They all have a, a common composer of heart. Um, it says that we need to have a rhythm to prayer. Uh, we cannot pray at all times if we do not pray at specific times, consciously willing it. Uh, that's why we have a liturgical calendar that helps us in our prayer. There's a routine to it. Um, and so the three ways that the church recommends to us to pray are vocal prayer, meditative prayer, and contemplative prayer. And so vocal prayer is the prayer that you're probably used to. It's spoken prayer. It's out loud. Maybe it's recited prayers like the Our Father, things like that, or it's just speaking to God spontaneously out loud about the things that you need. We obviously do this, but we do it badly because we do it almost as a checklist or we treat God like a divine ATM. Here's what I need. Please give it to me. And we don't spend a lot of time listening to the other end of that like we would a normal conversation. And so I like to imagine prayer as a relationship like we would like a dating relationship and a marriage because that's, you know, what it's meant to look like, this giving of ourselves to God and him giving uh, him to him, to us in return. Um, and so I want you to apply these, the ways that you pray to a dating relationship or relationship in all of its stages. So I want to imagine that your vocal prayer, your spoken prayer, the things you ask God for on a daily basis that are just your, your tentative, your, your regular prayers. Imagine you talked to a person that way on a first date. Now, does that strike you as strange? You know, let's say like, okay, I'm just going to keep talking about all the things that I need or I want out of this relationship from day one. No desire to listen to what the other person has to say. Um, or maybe we're just asking about really um, routine things, you know, like um, every time we go on a date, we just talk about the weather. Um, or every time we go on a date, we just, um, you know, first date, second date, third date, we have the same conversation exactly verbatim that we did the time before. I know there's people listening, myself included at times. I do this in my prayer. I ask for the same petitions every day, every time I enter into prayer, thinking like God forgot. But no, like if we did that on a first date and a second date and a third date, like that would be, they'd be like, what, does this guy not know any other words? Like what, what is this? Is this going to be conversation for a whole life? But those first date experiences are about learning each other about like learning what makes the other person tick. And that's why the Our Father is so great because it recognizes here's who you are and I am grateful for who you are and I desire to enter into this with uh, to receive what you have in store for me today. I'm going to be in a spirit of listening and receptivity. And if there's anything, any obstacle to this encounter right now, I'm going to remove it. If I'm angry for any reason, if I'm frustrated, I'm going to remove it and I'm not going to be afraid of that. I'm going to be present here with you in this place, unique to this day. And so that's what we can do. That's how we can approach vocal prayer with a proper composure of our heart to be one that is receptive. And so to recognize if you're uh, speaking your needs in prayer, I would encourage you make sure your needs are unique to that day. Trust that God did not forget what you said yesterday. Or you can say things like, and all the intentions that I've spoken or that are on my heart, if you need kind of that little crutch. But like, really, if we really trust God, like if we said it once, he heard it. And he knows the persistent worry in our heart. It's not like he's just going to, you know, if we've given him permission once, if we say, God, I give you permission to handle this, that's all he needs. We don't need to do it every single day. Um, so pray unique to that day. And as much as you speak, listen at least that much. Let it be a conversation. Receive, think, reflect on the words that you're saying and allow your prayer to change you because you're not going to change God's mind. God already desires to bring about your greatest good. And so we bring it to him because we love him. Just like I share things with my wife, just about routine things of my day, not because I think they're utterly inspiring and they're really going to affect her in any profound way, but because I love her and she loves me and that we desire to know those things about each other.
So that's vocal prayer. Second is meditative prayer. We're okay at this. I think this is becoming a little more prevalent in the church and a lot of our uh, prayer practices, but we focus, I think, more on what we can get out of it rather than really growing closer to Jesus. So what do I mean by meditative prayer? Um, so meditative prayer is things like Lexio Divina, um, diving into scripture, spiritual reading, uh, praying a rosary. This is like uh, reading something or undergoing a prayer practice that allows us into a deeper meditative state about some area in the life of Jesus or some theological concept or some story from scripture. And we really get to dive into that. Um, what we read, however, what we pray, we need to conf allow it to confront us. I think sometimes we do this like um, the movie Groundhog Day. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's, you know, Bill Murray plays this, this weather, uh, is he a weatherman? He's a reporter, something like that. And he lives the same day over and over and over and over again. And at one point he really is interested in this woman. And so he lives every day trying to find out more and more information about her so he can impress her with how much they have in common. I think we do that with God. Like we try and learn more and more and more like fringe facts and theological insights about him. So it seems like we have this really close relationship. Um, and, or we have this really profound connection to him because of this deep reflection that we had. No, it needs to confront us personally. Like, it's not about like, if you're reading, you know, um, you know, Matthew 25 and the judgment of the nations and you're like, oh yeah. And this connects to, you know, the fact that we're all baptized into the, the royal office of Jesus. And we all recognize we all have royalty and we meant to do acts of social justice. And that's part of our baptismal call. And you have this profound revelation, but you're not out there serving the poor and donating to them and serving in soup kitchens and you're kind of a jerk to strangers like then it, it it's had zero fruit in your life zero uh it's just swelled up your own pride so that's what i mean we kind of use this i i see this being used as a way to collect profound information about god but if it doesn't sink deeper into that composure of the heart of receptivity we're meant to have then it's fruitless so we're not meant to be God's stalkers to get all this information about him, but we're engaging with him in this dynamic experience. We're, we're allowing him to draw us deeper into reflection so that it will change us. Remember, we can't change him and we're never going to fully understand him and learn everything that we can about him on this earth. It's just our, our human brains could not fathom that much information, um, but we can allow him to draw us deeper for our own spiritual benefit in these moments of meditation. And so this is more about like in the dating analogy, like imagine how destructive that would be if all you, all you did was kind of like Facebook stalk this other person and then just lied about your life or pretended that you had all these things in common or that you understood this person, but you really weren't sharing anything that profound about yourself or really weren't allowing that to draw you into deeper relationship with them. You were just kind of creating this like, I don't know, file on this person to know as much as you could about them. Like that's stalking, you know, but we do that with God. And so it's more about creating a relationship that is desiring to learn who the other one is. Um, my wife and I just the other night watched the movie, The Wedding Singer. And um, not necessarily the movie I would recommend the most. It's not, you know, bad in, in the sense that it doesn't have like a ton of cursing or, you know, nudity or in it or anything, but it's not necessarily the most you know, approvable movie. But um, there's this line in it where this older woman that uh, Adam Sandler's character is teaching how to play uh, or how to sing music lessons um, she recognizes that he's, um, he's kind of met this girl. And so she says to him, you'll know when you meet the right girl, because it's not how you feel about her. It's how she makes you feel about yourself. You'll know when you meet the right girl, because it's not how you feel about her. It's how she makes you feel about yourself. 
I loved that line because I think it's very indicative of what meditative prayer is meant to look like. We're not always going to feel like our relationship with God is rainbows and sunshine or that we're super connected with him or that we understand where he's leading us. But if we're allowing ourselves to be drawn into deeper meditative prayer, that's going to affect how we feel. Like he's going to speak to us in deep places. And even though we don't understand or things might not be, you know, rosy and great, especially in a time like now, we can still be drawn into deeper prayer with him. So that's meditative prayer. And then the third is contemplative prayer. And I will say we're downright bad at this in Catholic spirituality. We mess it up royally. So contemplative prayer, this is what St. Teresa of Jesus said. Uh, Contemplative prayer, in my opinion, is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. So this is simply being together. Like wanting to go be with the person that you love. I think we're too instructional in our prayer tactical, like we have a checklist, like I've said, we're too busy and active during most of our prayer time. Um, And this is like, imagine doing this as an old couple, like imagine a couple has been married for like 70 years. That's a long time, 50 years. And every time they speak, they're like, all right, um, let's have this uh, conversation that we have. Um, Let's uh, talk about these things. Let's go make sure we're doing these experiences, learning more about each other. And, you know, make sure we have this checklist for conversation every time we talk. They've been married for 50 years. They know like everything about each other. And they have the capability. doesn't mean they shouldn't be talking and connecting. But I think you'll find in your friendships and your relationships, you've probably had this experience. There's someone who you can sit in a room with and have a deep you know, connection with and enjoy your time together. And you don't really need to say anything or much at all. And it's not that like, we don't know how to talk anymore, but it's just like, we can enjoy just this time together. My wife and I can do this. We can go people watch or we can go sit on a park bench and just enjoy the scenery. And we don't need to say anything. But if you act like that on a first date, then that's going to be a little creepy if you're just not talking. You know, I mentioned this in a previous episode. So this, there's a progression to this from vocal into meditative into contemplative. We're doing less And saying less, we're kind of emptying ourselves of this checklist and getting to a place where we progress in relationship far enough with Jesus that we can really just be with him. And it doesn't mean the vocal becomes unnecessary and the meditative becomes unnecessary. We still should ask for things from our father in heaven who loves us because he desires that from us as his children. But the way we do it and the composure of our heart and how complex or simple the wording is. Uh, and how much trust is behind it, that all changes the deeper we get into contemplative prayer and the more comfortable we are with silence. When you, tr- If you were to go, like if you're not used to this method or type of prayer and you were to go try it right now, I don't know if you'd be able to get into contemplative prayer or at least not a deep place of silence for more than like 10 or 15 seconds before you're distracted if you've never tried it. And so you have to work your way up. It's just true of all of us. It's not because you're not holy or because you don't get it. It's just because it's a muscle. It's a way of being in relationship that we have to grow and exercise. So it starts with the, those first date type of conversations, but let them be back and forth. Let them be meaningful. Let them be unique to who you are that day and what's on your heart, what you're passionate about and what you're really worried about. And then as you progress in your relationship, let those deeper meditative things come up, those deeper experiences of being drawn deeper into this person's life and allowing yourself to feel different because of it, allowing it to change you and make you feel better even about yourself, that this person would draw you into this deep place for your own benefit. So you would know them and be in relationship with them. And then eventually you get to this place where you can just be with that person and enjoy it. And you'll still talk and you'll still have those experiences together, but you can now have that other experience of just being together with no pressure. That's what prayer is really meant to look like. And so examples of this type of prayer are um, the mass, 
That's really how we're meant to enter into mass is just to receive everything that is there. You don't have to be doing anything mentally or like, you know, studying in complex ways, everything that's happening. Same thing with adoration. You know, they desire our participation, but I think because we're very American and gung-ho and manifest destiny, participation means, okay, what's the checklist I have to do? Where in Catholic spirituality, participation is an open heart that's being offered to receive whatever Jesus has in store for you. And so shifting that in our minds, I think, is, is very helpful. So this is indicative of things like intensity, silence, gaze, the words hearing and listening. Those things come, those adjectives kind of describe contemplative prayer. Um, so as I said, the deeper you get into these stages, the less you're doing and saying, the more you're just kind of opening up to receive the love of God. I think a good example of this is my wife once, I went with her, she went to present a scholarly paper um, at a university um, for some writing colloquium for English, because my wife is an English professor. She's a master's in, in, in literature. And so um, I went with her, uh, knowing full well that I probably would have very little idea or uh, of what was going on. And I never would have chose to go to something like this by myself, at least not for that particular topic, because it's not something I'm as passionate about as she is. But I went for her and I enjoyed it because she enjoyed it. And I just got to be there and receive. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to participate. I didn't know the questions to ask or the things to say or what I should be paying attention to. But I saw her light up and give this great presentation and people respond to it and engage with her. And I loved it. And, you know, and I remember it. That was years ago. And so I think that's something to, to consider. So um, I don't want you to go and, and think about this and then go do these examples. Like, okay, how do I go do vocal prayer better? How do I go do meditative prayer better? How do I go do contemplative prayer better? No, if you do that, you've missed the whole point. It's recognizing that the next time you pray, strive to encounter God in a deeper way using whatever you need to do, like whatever form of prayer you need to encounter him and to receive. These, these experiences, these types of prayer, they don't make up your prayer life. It's the experience of a relationship with God that makes up your prayer life. And all of these become ways in which that relationship deepens and grows. So it's not the thing in itself. It's not the form of prayer that is your prayer life. The relationship, the connection is your prayer life. The way of doing it is just a way of connecting. It's like a, a date or, you know, an outing, an adventure. But the relationship is still there. That's what fuels it. That's what is the fire behind it. And so, for instance, like living together. Going on dates, having children, talking to each other, sleeping in the same bed, that doesn't make you married. Those things describe a marriage. There are ways in which you can enter deeper into the marriage relationship. But marriage is, by its definition, a committing, a partnership for the whole of life, as we said in our last episode, a committing of your life to the other in a selfless, sacrificial, and humble way that's open and from the heart, that gives them all of yourself. If we can just apply that to our prayer life, then we'll be fantastic at praying. And it doesn't matter what words, how uh, numerous or few, how eloquent or simple, what style or form of prayer that works for you, that every day it can change. And every day you can come to God uniquely in prayer because you understand what prayer is. It is not a checklist. It is a disposition and composure of the heart that is always gift. It is always covenant. It is always communion. And it manifests in our life in opportunities 
from vocal prayer, meditative prayer, contemplative prayer. So I want to encourage you, go read that last section of the catechism, and this will really come to life for you. And maybe you'll recognize, like, I've been praying wrong my whole life, and, and in fact, I haven't really been praying. I've been just running through, like, a Catholic checklist, or I've been really good at my Catholic exercise routine, you know. Um, I'm an expert at Catholic calisthenics, but I don't have an actual relationship with Jesus, and that, don't feel bad if you're there. That is a beautiful revelation to have. I don't care how old you are because that is what it's all about. And when you realize that and prayer comes from that place of receiving Jesus and just being with him, that is what makes all the difference. All the other stuff, the opportunities, the ways you pray, they just fall into place. Just like my wife and I, we don't need to plan what we're doing every single day for the next month. But we know when we get to that day, if we're just open and willing to experience that day together, it's going to be a great experience. Whatever we do on that day off or that date night, we can decide right in that moment. And as long as we come to it with a spirit of openness, it's going to be beautiful because we'll have great conversation. We'll enjoy each other's company. And that's what it's like to be in relationship. So think about a real relationship or a real marriage, one that's healthy, fruitful, productive, use your own experience. And if your prayer life doesn't look like that with Jesus, figure out what's going on. Let us know, like, let, let me know. And if you have a question about how that can be fixed or be better or be more open, I'm happy to try and offer help. But I hope this episode helps. And if you need some inspiration from a great saint, I want to introduce you to a saint you probably have not heard of. Uh, this saint is St. Benedict Joseph Labray. Um, really awesome saint. I have never heard of him, but he is a um, firepower of prayer. Um, he lived from 1748 to 1783. So what is that? Um, man, he lived just to like 35 years old, um, died, died young. Um, so he was a, um, a mendicant, which means, uh, a, someone who begged, um, for their, for what they were provided. Um, he was a Franciscan tertiary. That means he was not a priest, but he was a lay person who took on Franciscan orders, um, uh, or Franciscan vows. And he is a saint. Um, his feast day is April 16th, which was the day he died. He's the patron of unmarried men, rejects, mental illness, mentally ill people, insanity, beggars, hobos, and the homeless. All just really, really neglected or often sought as not important or unimportant or unvaluable people in society historically. Um, not very great and grandiose. And I think that's why I was so inspired by his prayer life because he recognized that spirit of humility and that spirit of need that we need to bring to prayer. And he lived that through his life. So he was born in 1748 in the north of France. He was the oldest of 15 children. Uh, his dad was a prosperous shopkeeper uh, and his mom helped raise the children. And he had an uncle who was a parish priest, and he started educating him early for the priesthood. So when he was 16, he approached that same uncle about becoming a Trappist monk. But his parents told him that he had to wait till he was older. So uh, when he was 18, um, an epidemic fell on the whole city. Um, huh, ironic. And his uncle and his nephew were busying themselves in service of the sick. Uh, or uncle and nephew, so him and his uncle. Um, and so while his uncle took care of those souls and the bodies of the people, he went, uh, Benedict went to and fro, um, back and forth, uh, caring for the cattle, for the livestock, and for doing the other things. Um, and so uh, eventually that epidemic took the life of his uncle. And so he tried to join the Trappists and the Carthusians and the Cistercians, but he was rejected after applying because, uh, or he had a short stint there and then left. Because um, he wasn't very um, physically able, 
um, or they thought he was too young or he was unsuitable for communal life for whatever reason, um, or he had frail health, whatever reason they gave. Um, all of them were, were um, seemed to be true reasons based on his life that he was um, frail or too young or didn't have great health. Um, but he really wanted to live this life of detachment, of complete emptiness. And this is like complete detachment from everything. And this is where I think that image of the water falling, like, and that's how we're meant to be. We're not to, meant to be going up the mountain, but seeing how we can detach ourselves, go further down the mountain to this place of emptiness. That's why I think he's such a great saint for our, um, to ask for the intercession of when we, when it comes to prayer. So he ended up becoming a third order uh, Franciscan. So he took uh, vows of poverty and pilgrimage, um, or a life of poverty and pilgrimage, and um, but he was not an ordained priest. And so he traveled to Rome from northern France on foot, uh, and he did this um, as a mendicant, meaning he only survived on what he could get from begging. Um, he traveled to most of the major shrines of Europe on foot. He would sleep in, uh, in, out in the open or in the corner of a room. His clothes were normally muddy and ragged. Um, and on one occasion, he stopped at the farmhouse of Mathieu and Marie Vienne, who are the parents of St. John Vienne. Uh, and so little connection there, but he lived on what little he was given. And he often shared the little he had with other people. Um, he was reported to have talked rarely, prayed often, and accepted quietly the abuse he received. That to me is just like a model for prayer. Accepting, not holding on to unforgiveness as we're warned against in the Our Father. Talking rarely and praying often. Recognizing our position in that relationship. Um, then eventually he um, he would often, uh, he would get into these contemplative prayer states when he would contemplate the crown of thorns and he would have this experience of swooning. Um and particularly in some of those states, he would levitate or he would bilocate. Um, he was also said to have cured um, some of the homeless people he met to have multiplied, multiplied bread for them. And in the final years of his life, when he was in his 30s, he lived in Rome and he was living in the ruins of the Colosseum for a time. And he would only leave to make a yearly pilgrimage to the Shrine of Our Lady of Loreto. And he became a familiar figure in the city. He was known as the Saint of the 40 Hours or the Quarante Ore because he had this dedication to Eucharistic adoration going in there for what I assume is like 40 hours at a time. Um, he ended up dying basically, I think, of malnutrition um, at, uh, at the age of about 35, um, April 16th, 1783. He died during Holy Week. Um, how crazy is it that he was around the age of Jesus, you know, Jesus died about 33 years old, maybe up to 35 cause he could have been born about two BC, two to four BC. Um, he also died during Holy week. Um, also was a, you know, a mendicant of sorts like this, this guy just seems like he really lived the life of Christ. Um, his confessor, whose name was Marconi wrote in his biography about, um, St. Benedict Joseph Labray that there were attributed 136 separate cures to his intercession within three months of his death. And those miracles were instrumental in converting someone named Reverend John Thayer, who was the first American Protestant clergyman to convert to Catholicism. Um, he was in, a resident in Rome at the time of, of Benedict's death. And here's a couple things that this saint said. He said, we offend God because we do not know his greatness. We offend God because we do not know his greatness. I think that is so indicative of the way we pray. We're not willing to trust in the greatness of God. And so we come to him with a laundry list of things we feel we need to remind him of as if he will forget or things we need to do to earn his attention as if he can't pay attention to all of us simultaneously. We offend God because we do not know his greatness. And then God afflicts us because he loves us. And it is very pleasing to him when in our afflictions, he sees us abandon ourselves to his paternal care. 
So what this means, he doesn't afflict us, meaning he doesn't cause sin, but meaning the fact his love is what afflicts us and causes us to want to be better. And that is what's pleasing to him is when we recognize that affliction and we abandon ourselves to his paternal care and we empty ourselves and recognize this is God, this is me, here's the proper relationship, and here's how I'm meant to come to him in humble self-offering. That is St. Benedict Joseph Labre. Pray for us. St. Charles Borromeo, our patron saint, pray for us. And if this episode was beneficial to you, please let us know. The highest compliment you can pay us is to share this on social media. I know this was a longer episode, but I feel like prayer is such a massive thing. And this was such a um, misconception-breaking episode, in my opinion, that I think it was important to go longer. So um, hopefully it was a benefit to you. Please rate and review us if you haven't yet. You can support us financially for as little as a dollar a month on Patreon. All of that information is on our website, manafoodforthought.com, as well as our weekly blogs, which are reflections on the upcoming Sunday Psalm every week. And all of that goes to our Instagram, which is at manafoodforthought. And so I want to encourage you to get connected to us on there. Let us know if you desire uh, us to do a particular episode on anything. And if uh, we can be of help to you or follow up and answer any questions, please let us know. But know that we are praying for you praying for you in a spirit of humble receptivity to God, asking for him for our unique needs of this day, which of which you are praying for you today, and that uh, we will see you in the Eucharist. God bless you. Amen.